So first, uh, I, I'm David Smith. I was, I'm the guy who did the other talk. Uh, so uh, at the Calvin University, uh, the Education Department, the Kaiser Institute. Um, and um, a quick disclaimer here, because the word assessment in the title, and uh, because it's always possible that the abstract wasn't completely revelatory. Uh, what I'm going to be focusing on in this hour is uh, some ways of thinking about whole school assessment and knowing whether our faith formation efforts, whether the attempt of the Christian school to make a difference Christianly for students, are effective or not. So I'm not going to be talking about how to assess your math class or uh, any of that kind of thing. We're going to be thinking about assessment. In a... So yeah, if anybody feels a need to leave for another session, I won't be offended. Um, I say that because I did this session at another conference in Australia a few weeks ago, and one of the pieces of feedback was I thought I was going to learn how to assess my math class. Sorry. So um, you live and you learn. Uh, so what I want to talk about is we've been working at the Kaiser Institute for a number of years on a project uh, which is nearing sort of its public face uh, to try to think about how we assess Christian schools, right? How do we know if we're doing a good job? Now, there's a need for that for several reasons. One is just the wider culture of educational assessment. There's a lot of pressure to have numbers for things, you know, rightly or wrongly. Um, and so schools need some benchmarks. They need some ways of showing what they're doing is real. Um, but apart from cultural pressure, I mean, internally, we tend to claim a lot of big things in our brochures. It might be nice to know whether they're actually true. Uh, so uh, even just internally giving our schools some way of finding out how well we're doing. And I'm also interested particularly in formative assessment. In other words, assessment as a way of feeding into our own practice, not just as a way of coming up with a number, but as a way of knowing what we need to do differently next year. Uh, so that's kind of the, the big background set of questions. And there's a number of worries that drove, like, why another project on this? Because there are other people working on this. So... Um one of the things that was worrying us about what was out there already, we sort of looked at the tools that are already available to schools for trying to assess faithy things. And uh, one of the problems we saw was that there's very little out there that gives students meaningful feedback. So what often tends to happen with these things is you herd a bunch of students into a room, loads of, loads of space down the front, um, <coughs> back. Um, you tend to herd a bunch of students into a room, they fill out a questionnaire, it goes off somewhere, the administrators get some data, and there's never anything, you know, the students just did this mystery thing. Right? It's, uh, there's no immediate benefit for the students. So one of the things we wanted to think about, is there a way of doing this that actually creates a learning benefit from the students, so that you're actually creating learning time, not just, we need you to do this strange thing for half an hour for the sake of the school time. Uh, so that was one of the things that we were, we were thinking about going in. Um, another thing was questions about formation. Because um, it seemed to us that a lot of the tools that were out there didn't really get at this very well. So th this is slightly oversimplified, but when I look at what's out there in terms of, again, trying to assess faithy things, there are basically three options. Um, so you either take some kind of assessment that gets your students to answer a bunch of questions about whether they believe the right things, right? There's some of those out there. So you, you take an assessment that tells you how many of your students believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Bible is the inspired word of God and so on, and it gives you a number for how many of your students are orthodox against somebody's definition of orthodoxy. Right? So um, some of these get very specific. I was at a conference a couple of years ago where someone told me in a very earnest tone that, that their tool showed that only... 
5% of Christians in Christian schools were actually Bible-believing Christians. Um, and to which my response was, that probably tells me more about your tool than it tells me about Christian schools. Um, so uh, I had another school principal from a, from a long way, way away from here come to me and he said, he said, yeah, we tried one of those tools and none of the school administration came out as Christians. So, it was, uh, um, so, you know, so one of the problems with these is actually, you know, sort of trying to define what the boundaries are. So exactly which things do I have to believe as count, to count as being in the faith? Um, but also it basically gives you a benchmark about student beliefs. Um, that can be an interesting thing to know, but it's difficult to know how it relates to what you ought to do differently in the math class next year. Right? You, you get this, and it's also difficult to know where that's coming from, right? Maybe a lot of that has nothing to do with the school. Uh, a second kind of model is there are tools that try to measure spirituality. So if you experience the presence of God recently, right, what kind of prayer life do you have? Uh, this sort of sense of like openness to spiritual experience. And again, that can give you useful data about a certain kind of thing. Once again, it's not clear how it relates to what we do in the classroom a lot of the time. Um, and a third model that you see is the one that basically tries to measure how much religious activity you engage in. So do you go to worship services? Do you read your Bible? Do you go to prayer meetings? Uh, and so on. And again, that's a potentially useful thing to know about, but it's really hard to know how it relates back to classroom teaching uh, and, and what we might do differently in Christian schools. So I'm trying to think about formation and what kinds of formation happens. Um, for a long time, I've been trying to think about this broadly. So, so to get at this really quickly, because I've talked for hours about this at past conventions, um, an example that um, Mark Vanderwerf from Grand Rapids Christian uh, High School uh, presented maybe like three or four CEAs ago uh, was one where he talked about uh, how he'd had this practice in his religion class of putting a quotation on the, on the board or the screen at the start of the, uh, the class from some Christian thinker and giving the students three or four minutes at the start of class to journal about the quotation and uh, just reflect on what Augustine said about whatever the topic of the day was. Uh, this is not a dumb way to start class. I mean, it's, you know, it usually turns out if you actually give students three or four minutes to think, they have more ideas when you try to discuss things with them. So, um, but he started to get frustrated over time with how many of his journals that he was getting back from students started with the phrase, I think. And he started to worry that the message that he was really reinforcing was that the most important thing about Augustine was that you had an opinion about him. Uh, and, and so he started questioning that practice, and he shifted it so that he moved the journaling activity to the end of the class and changed the prompt so that the prompt now was, what did you learn from someone else in the class today? Um, and students had to journal about that for a few minutes at the end of the class. Now, he still had a reflection activity at the start of the class. But notice the things this starts to change. What he started to find was when the students wrote the journal entries, they didn't start, I think. They started, I never knew that Joe thought. Um, and it started actually talking about what other people in the room thought and recognizing the existence of other people. And think about how this unfolds over time. If you're in this class and it starts to become an expectation that at the end of the class there's going to be a journal activity where you have to write about what you learned from somebody else, do you think that would affect how you paid attention to other people for the hour before, gradually, over time? So this then becomes a formational tool. Right? You gradually start to get used to being in a learning community where you're supposed to pay attention to what other people say, where it matters what other people think, and it's not just about you getting the chance to air your own opinion. I think this is faith formation. <coughs> But this is not 
do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And it's not, did you go to a prayer meeting recently? And it's not, did you experience the Holy Spirit this week? It's these little choices about how we design learning environments that are feeding into how students get formed over time. So we wanted to somehow get at that, not just ask students whether they go to church or whether they believe the right thing or whether they experience God. Um, just a couple of, uh, if you want some some bigger words on that, Jeff Astley's got an essay where he says, formation is all the processes of teaching and or learning that help to shape a learner in a tradition and its beliefs, experiences and practices in a way that leads to the learner's acceptance of that tradition in her thinking, valuing, feeling and perceiving and her dispositions to act and experience together with her appraisal of the tradition's merits and faults. Um, if that's what formation is, then everything's on the deck, right? Uh, everything you do in the classroom is potentially contributing towards formation. Um, Neil Holm argues that teachers can create classroom conditions that help to shape the hearts and lives of students in ways that do not hinder the receiving of grace, but instead make it easier to believe. And I, I like that formulation because you can't make classroom choices that cause grace to happen, because you ain't God, um, and because this isn't a vending machine, right? But you can create classroom conditions that make it easier uh, for us to move in those directions. Uh, so, again, formation we were interested in. I'm also interested in questions about what faith is. If you're actually going to try and mention faith, it might be good to have an idea about what faith is. So is faith believing things? Is that what faith is? Is that what being Christian is? Right? Um, is faith experiencing things? Is it, is it the, the, the moment when you sense the touch of the Holy Spirit? Is that, is that what faith is? Right? Is faith doing stuff? Is it going, going to church, going to worship? Is that what faith is? Um, once you start from a prior sense of what faith is, that's going to affect what you think you're measuring when you try to measure whether you're having an impact on students' faith formation. So if you think that faith is mostly having your beliefs straight, in which case most Christians in history aren't saved, um, then, um, then if you try to measure faith formation, you're going to try to measure how clear people's beliefs are coming, becoming. Right? If you think faith is mostly having a certain kind of experience of God, you're going to try to measure those experiences. So there's a, there's a connection in there between your baseline assumptions about what it is you're looking at. Um, to, to invoke Abraham Kuyper, because I do work at Calvin University, um, you know, the square inch thing is getting a little tired. Um, so I, he does have other metaphors. And one of the ones that I think is kind of fun is he talks in one of his essays about how there's a tendency in the modern world for particular grace to float in the air. So by particular grace, he means, you know, the doctrines of salvation, right? This is the sense of, like, my relationship with Jesus, prayer, Bible, salvation, and so on. These, these sort of the concentrated grace bits of, of Christian identity. There's a tendency for those to float in the air. Like you can go to church and talk about justification by faith and, and Jesus being the son of God and salvation and so on. But most of the rest of your life is shaped by other principles. Uh, so faith becomes like a hot air balloon. It's kind of beautiful. It's kind of majestic. It's slightly inspiring. It has a calming effect. But you wouldn't actually use it to get to the supermarket or to get to the office, or to bring home the groceries. Then you'd get in the SUV. So um, this is one of the things, I mean, this is what the every square inch thing is about, for those that are familiar with that trope, but uh, this sense that somehow in the modern world it's easy for faith to become this little compartment that doesn't seem to touch most of the way that life works, um, because most of the time you're running another script. Uh, so the danger is then, if we think if faith becomes something that floats in the air and then you try to measure faith, 
then you might just be measuring how good your hot air balloons are. Um, and it might not be touching the rest of what goes on. So this is another worry that was going into the design of this. Now let me get concrete here. Because what I found, uh, me and other colleagues, a couple of things we did. One of the things we did was we spent a year um, with a group I put together which consisted of three college faculty, three high school teachers, uh, three student life professionals, and three students. And we spent a year reading all of the advice we could find on how to be a Christian student, starting with the most recent Baker Books paperbacks and working our way back to the Church Fathers. And uh, just had a lot of conversations about it. And then since then, for other research projects, I've also spent a fair bit of time over the last few years in focus groups with students uh, at the high school level and the college level. And what I started noticing was that when you ask students to talk about how they're living out their faith... The kinds of examples they give you are things that would not show up on most of the ways we currently have to measure faith formation. So, for example, a student at Calvin College, we had a chat, and he said, he said, you know, after a year at, uh, at Calvin University, haven't quite kicked the habit yet, um, and uh, he said, after a year at, at university, it's starting to trouble me that I live in an environment where I am surrounded by people who are basically employed to make my life go better. There are people who prepare my meals for me, who work in dining services. There are people who keep the campus clean, who work in and keep the electricity working and keep the tech working. Right? There are people who prepare classes for me. Uh, there are people who run the mail room. Right? And like, there's just hundreds of people who are basically employed so that I can read stuff uh, and go to class. And this is starting to feel like it could be bad for my spiritual formation. It's very kind of self-centered. So I said, what I've decided to do next semester is I'm going to try and invest time in intentionally getting to know the people who work in dining services and the people who work in physical plant and finding out what's going on in their lives and finding out if there are ways I can pray for them. Maybe there are ways I can help um, because I need to invest in this for my, for my Christian growth. My, my first reaction was, wow, we have a few really mature Christian students on our campus. Right? I like this. Uh, so I'm thinking, this is exactly the kind of thing you want a Christian student to be thinking. Right? How, is, how is my environment forming me, and how do I grow um, in my Christ-likeness? But this wouldn't have showed up on a questionnaire that asked him whether he believed Jesus was the Son of God, or whether he read the Bible, or whether he went to church recently. Um, another student, uh, again, we, we, we asked the question, so, so you know, how, are you, how are you living out your faith? And the student said, well... In science class this semester, the teacher's been talking quite a bit about creation care. This was at a, at a high school. And so there were a bunch of us just kind of hanging out last weekend on Saturday morning, and we weren't quite sure what to do with our day. We didn't really have a plan. Um, so after we talked for a bit, we just all decided, because of the creation care thing, that we should all go down to the beach and pick up trash for the morning um, and just sort of help clean up. Um, again, you know, for the student, that was a faith rooted choice, right? They did this because they'd been learning about creation care in class. Um, and by, by the way, one of the things that I just want to say to you is not my topic, but one of my takeaways from hours of sitting in focus groups with students is your students are listening to you. Right? I know because I've been a high school teacher, it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> um, but when it looks like they're not listening to you, often it's not because they're not listening, it's because they're failing. And we all fail, right? None of you are implementing everything you're hearing. Um, but they're listening to you. We just kept hearing them quoting their teachers to us. And, um, so, and, then, and then trying to work it out, right? Sometimes in ways that you might not even be aware of and might not even see because this is not going to show up as a homework. So, uh, so again, this would not have showed up on any of the faith formation tools that I've seen. 
because it's not a prayer meeting, it's not a theological belief, it's not an experience of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's faith formation. Um, another student said to us, you know, I get to do a lot of my schoolwork and my homework on a laptop these days, and, and I know there are, there are risks around this. This was a middle school student, if I remember rightly, and uh, so I might not be using quite the middle school words for this, but uh, she said, so what I do whenever I open my laptop is I try to consciously imagine that God's there with me seeing everything that I'm doing on my laptop, and it just helps me remember that I just need to be careful what I'm doing when I'm firing up a web browser and, um, and working on my homework. And it, it just sort of helps me to remember every time I open my laptop that God's here and can see what I'm doing. Um, again, I'm laboring the point. Wouldn't have shown up on any measure of faith formation that I've seen. Uh, but another student uh, we talked to said, you know, I've, through my devotions, I've been just getting convicted lately about whether I'm respectful to other people, whether I just treat other people who are in the room with me well. And it's my habit to tend to go sit at the back of the classroom, right? You know, students and teachers are not different on this. Um, and uh, she said, uh, and I've started realizing that when I choose to go sit at the back, it makes, me, makes it easier for me to disengage. And, and that sometimes I'm just not listening well when my teacher's saying what might be important stuff. And I've started realizing that's not actually terribly respectful to my teacher. And so I've decided to actually actively try to change my habits when I walk into a classroom and go choose a seat nearer to the front to see if I can get myself into the habit of listening more carefully. Again, this is a student who's intentionally investing in their own formation for reasons that are rooted in their faith. Um, and I just, we just kept hearing these kinds of stories, right? Of students taking ownership for their own formation in ways that are clearly faith-connected, but aren't a confession of theological belief. They aren't a prayer meeting or a worship service, and they aren't a religious experience. They're actually getting past the hot air balloon thing. They're finding the connections between their faith and the way they actually move through the week. So in my world... Um, <laughs> If you, Smith's world, right? If, if we want to assess faith formation and it not be a hot air balloon, then we actually need to find a way of finding out about this stuff, right? About what are students doing when they're making these unpredictable real life connections that have something to do with their faith, have something to do with the rest of life, and aren't necessarily, I believe, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, right? So this is part of what we started shooting for. Um, so each of these examples strike me as having three things in common. First, they're all clearly to do with faith. Uh, now, they're not like inherently to do with faith. So, for instance, picking up litter on the beach, is that a Christian practice? Well, it might be. It might not. It depends what kind of story you bring to it. If you go pick up litter on the beach because you just learned that as a Christian you have a responsibility for creation care, it's a Christian practice. If you go pick up litter on the beach because you're bored and you've got nothing better else to do, it's not a Christian practice. Right? This goes back to what I was saying about the Eucharist this morning. Right? What's Christian about stuff is not just the moves, it's the way you bring the story and the moves together, right? It's drinking the, bre- drinking the wine, eating the bread, and telling the story of the, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ that makes it the Eucharist, right? So likewise, it's not just the picking up litter on the beach. So we've got to be careful here, right? It's not just like do-good behaviors that make this Christian. It's the ways in which the beliefs and the choices come together. Um, but all of these clearly have something to do with faith. Um, I also think all of these have something to do with pedagogy. Each of the things I've just described are student choices that are influenceable by teachers. Right? In, the beach, in the beach case, it was explicitly influenced by teachers. They're, they're taking the words of their teacher and applying them at the beach on a Saturday. Um, in each of the other cases, 
could you help your students to think about how where they sit in class might be a choice that affects how they treat the people around them? And think about the choices they make about the way they interact with other people. When, is that the sort of thing you could teach about? Could you, could you teach about how to manage your own temptations when you go on a device that's connected to the internet? Is that something you could... Could you ask students to think about do you actually know anybody in the school outside your peer group? Do you know who works in the cafeteria? Um, if this is a Christian community, right? are you invested in the other people here? Um, I remember once visiting a Christian school on the East Coast, talking to a room full of middle school kids who were convinced they would never need to know Spanish after school um, because they weren't going to be missionaries. And when I asked them um, how many speakers of Spanish lived in the United States, they said, oh, lots, on the West Coast and in Los Angeles Airport. Several of the custodial employees in the school were Hispanic. Um, so, so again, you know, what does it mean to be part of it? Is that something you could teach about? Right? What does it mean to be part of a Christian? So I think all of these are pedagogically vulnerable, if I can coin a phrase here. Right? These are not things that just happen mysteriously. They're things that can be affected by teaching and learning. That makes them interested to me because they're things that we can think about how to get better at helping students with. And I also think that all of these are focused on the present. They're not focused on the future. They're about students making choices right now. They're not students dreaming about how to be a Christian in eight years' time when they're a missionary in the Dominican Republic. Right? They're about students trying to figure out right now as a high school student, how do I be a Christian? Which I actually think is your students calling right now. So I want to think about vocation for a moment, because this is another thing that started to feed into our thinking. Because we went and uh, surveyed a bunch of literature on vocation, and by the way, if you search for images on Google for vocation, you very quickly get these kinds of images, because people can't spell. Um, so, uh, so vocation um, is, of course, a, you know, a historic word for Christian calling. Now, we, we, we don't have an hour to play with this, but you know, historically, once upon a time, vocation was mostly a word for callings to full-time religious ministry, uh, so to be a priest or a nun or a monk. Right? After the Reformation, this started to shift, and, and Reformation <coughs> theologians, one of the things that changed was thinking about vocation much more broadly and saying, all you all have a, vo a vocation. Right? And, um, and this then, in turn, also led to clarifying another distinction, uh, which I don't think we're doing well with in a lot of the ways we talk about this in education. So vocation, in, in, if you go read some decent theology around this, you actually have two vocations. You have what's often called a general vocation and a particular vocation. So your basic vocation, the vocation that every Christian has, is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's to live your life before the face of God. It's to become Christ-like. That's your vocation. Your vocation is not to be a teacher or a policeman or a, um, or a house, homemaker or whatever, right? Your, your vocation at its core means your vocation to be a Christian. That then gets worked out within particular vocations that might change over time. So I might be a businessman for a while and then decide to be a teacher. And, right? so, so the other vocation is, is, is more malleable, more vulnerable. Right? It can change. Um, but your basic vocation is to be Christian, is to figure out how to make your life Christ-shaped. Uh, and within that, within particular offices, within particular stations within society, you try to figure out what it means to be a Christ-shaped police officer. Right? Or to how to be a Christ-shaped teacher, or how to be a Christ-shaped politician. Wouldn't it be nice to have a few of those? Um, and uh, so, um, so this is the basic structure of Christian thinking about vocation. Now, um, 
Here's, here's just a quote from one of the theological articles. Every significant social relation constitutes a calling, including paid work, but also being a friend, aunt, uncle, child, parent, student, and more. I want to pick one word out of here, student. Because I think we often use the word calling and vocation, and I think we often talk to students this way, as if vocation is something that happens after school. Right, that what school is doing is preparing you for your vocation. I took a photograph a week ago of a poster on the wall at Calvin University that says exactly that. Right? <laughs> that our program prepares you for your future vocation in international development. Right? So you get this emphasis on vocation as something future. That's not accurate. If you're a student right now, and you're a Christian, your general vocation is to be a Christian, your particular vocation is to work out how to be a Christian student. Right? Later you might be a bank manager, and then your general vocation will be to be a Christian, and your particular location, vocation will be to figure out how to be a Christian bank manager. And of course you can learn things from each of these that will feed into the others, but vocation is not what happens after you graduate. It's what you're called to right now, which means each of your students has a vocation right now to be a Christian student. What does that mean? How do we... Is that something we ever talk to students about? Right? What's your calling? Because a, a, lot, a lot of my students think that calling is this mysterious thing that if they go to the right prayer meeting enough times, that sometime, by the time they're a senior, an angel will appear to them and tell them what their calling is supposed to be. <laughs> right? and, and, and somehow then it will all make sense. Right? Well, no, you already have a calling right now. Your calling right now is to be a student. Um, so you better start figuring out what that means. So what we found in the literature is that we found, we, we did a lit survey this past summer looking at all the stuff we could find from the last 10 years on vocation. And we found that there was lots of stuff about this general vocation, all of life lived before God. There was lots of writing about the specific occupational vocation of whether I'm called to be a bank manager. Um, but if you actually put this student line on it, whether we're thinking about students' present or future, there was very, very little that paid attention to the present life of students as an arena of Christian vocation. Almost nothing. Um, again, we just kept hitting these future tense sentences about we're preparing students for their vocation. So if I can do one thing this morning, I want to erode that mental habit of talking to students as if their vacation is going to happen later. So thinking about assessment. So maybe then, if I want to assess something, I want to assess the degree to which the school is helping students to understand and live out their vocation as Christian students right now. Maybe that's what we might want to measure. Because there might be something in that for teachers and for students. Because if students could find out whether they're thinking well about their vocation, they can think about other ways in which they might want to grow. And if teachers could think about how well students are thinking about the vocation, we might find some areas where we could help students more by giving them some examples and making some suggestions and providing some learning practices. So out of this year of discussion and lit survey and so on, we came up with a rough map, and um, there is no taxonomy without misrepresentation. So... Um, <laughs> The, uh, um, anytime you try to break things down into five categories, you're always missing stuff. That's just the cost of being in the game. Um, but you also need a map to try to pay attention to some things. So um, Charles Taylor in a secular age... Uh, sorry, Mr. Mr. I think it's 2009. Mr. Number off there. Um, he's, not, he's old, but he's not that old. <laughs> um, 
theorize in one place for actors, understanding a theory is being able to put it into practice in their world. They understand it through the practices which put it into effect. These practices have to make sense to them, the kind of sense which the theory prescribes. So he basically says, you don't understand a theory until you've figured out how to put it into practice. Um, and the practices have to make sense to you within your life. So maybe the student doesn't understand creation care until they've decided to go pick up litter on the beach one Saturday morning. Right? That it's, it's the practices that actually, maybe growing in your faith is partly just figuring out how to live your faith. Uh, so... Whoop. Yeah, so I want to go here. Christian practices. So we broke this down into five areas. So who wanted to help students think about their vocation? What, what's a Christian vocation of being a student? Well, there's going to be an arena of vocation of relational practices. This is going to be one part of it. So simple questions like, if there's a student in your class who's struggling, struggling academically right now, have you noticed? Is that just the teacher's job? Or is it your calling as a member of a Christian learning community to offer support to those that are not doing well right now? Is there a student in your class who's upset right now, who's going through a significant life crisis? Have you noticed? Did you, did you treat your, your teacher respectfully this week? Where did you choose to sit? Did you listen well? Right? All of these are relational questions. They're questions about how you love your neighbor, how you treat the human beings in your immediate environment. Part of working out the general vocation of being a Christian in the particular vocation of being a student is going to be figuring out how to treat the other people in your environment. Um, now, again, I think this is something that teachers can help with. I'm sure at least half of you have heard me tell this story before, but I still like it. So um, I went to a parent-teacher conference one evening, talked to two science teachers, uh, and within, within like four minutes of each other uh, about my son. And the first one pulled out his grade book, ran his finger down the list of, of names till he got to my son's name, ran his finger along the list of scores, and read them out one by one across the row, and then read out the percentage at the end of the semester, and then sat back and smiled at me as if he'd said something intelligent. <laughs> and, um, and we had a little chat, and then I got up and I walked eight feet, and I sat down next to another science teacher, and he sat back and stroked his chin for a minute, and, uh, and he said, yeah, he said, I really enjoyed having your son in my class, because where he sits in, in the science class, there's a student who sits right behind him who has some learning difficulties, and we have these long blocked science classes, and this other student just finds it hard to, to track across like an hour and a half of a science class, and easily loses the plot, gets distracted. And I've noticed your son choosing tactful moments when it's not disrupting anything to just turn around and make sure this other student knows what's happening, um, and is keeping on track with what's going on. He said, and I've been really pleased with this because I've been emphasizing to our class this semester that if we're going to be a Christian learning community, learning science, that means you're not just here for your grade and your future college career and your success. You're here for the well-being of the person sitting to your left and to your right and in front of you and behind you. And I've seen your son taking that to heart and responding to that. So that's been a really important contribution to our class. Now, I came out of that, first of all, thinking, which of these two teachers would I like teaching my kids? Um, I'm voting number two. Um, I'm wondering how many science teachers on the face of North America think it's part of their responsibility as a science teacher to teach relational virtues. Right? But as soon as you walk into a classroom, you're teaching people how to relate to each other, whether you like it or not. Um, so I think there's, the, there's this whole arena that teachers and students need to be thinking about. There's another science teacher I know at a Christian school in the region who has a practice of... Um, uh, assigning a different student each day through the semester to be the person who is responsible for everyone today. Uh, and so if someone's absent, if they're off sick, this student has the responsibility of being the first person to notice, emailing them, finding out if they're sick, getting a good set of notes from them from the class, 
greeting them when they come back to the class the next day and welcoming them back to school and making sure that they have everything they need to catch up again. Um, and each student gets a chance to be that person through the year. Again, this is something that's building relational practices. So, enough said. First area, relational practices, is one area you can work out your Christian core. Area number two, intellectual practices. How do you choose what to believe? Right? So there is a thinking Christianly part to this, the whole worldview piece. Right? How do you, do you fact-check things that you read on the internet? How do you fact-check? Do you just check Wikipedia? Do you ever open a Bible while you're doing, doing homework? Um, I, do you ever check things that Christians tell you in the Bible to see if it really says that? Um, or whether somebody else is really just parroting the internet? Um, so this whole set of... Pre- do, how do you choose intellectual mentors? Do you, ever, do you ever choose a Christian book to read because you think it will teach you more about the world uh, rather than just because it will make you feel better? So how do you arrive at a Christian understanding of the world and how do you get better at doing that? Right? What, are, what are the practices of mental hygiene um, that might actually help you to get better at thinking about things Christianly? Who could help you do that? What kind of mentors do you need? Which teacher do you need to invite out to lunch and ask him what he thinks about a topic that you've been thinking about? Which teacher do you need to have coffee with and find out what she thinks about your opinion about what's going on right now? <coughs> So, um, so there's an arena of intellectual practices. Um, and again, some students are very invested in this. Right? Some students are you know, very intentionally pursuing lines of thought um, and trying to figure out what's true. Um, I remember talking to a student who said, uh, we did this project, uh, for, I, forget, I think it was for a religion class, um, where we had to kind of pick, I think they had to pick a passage in the New Testament and they had to go away and read the commentaries and try to find out what other people said and, and like come up with an interpretation uh, based on as many sources as they could. It sounded to me like a great assignment. Right? It was like, don't just, do the, don't just take the first thing you think. Right? Go check what everybody thought about this and where the pitfalls are and so on. And she said, the student said, I was so disappointed because when I came back to class after working on this for nearly a semester, it was like the major project for the semester, was that when it was done and I gave my presentation in class, all I got back was the teacher said it was great and I got a good grade. She said, I've been thinking about this for three months. I wanted to know whether it was true. Right? Um, I didn't want to know whether it was a B plus. Right? I wanted to know whether I, whether I got it right, right? whether I'd found something. Um, and I didn't get that kind of engagement with whether the ideas were true or not. Right? What, what I got was you did a great piece of work, and that wasn't what I was looking for. Right? So sometimes students are looking for this kind of discipling of their own. You know, they want to know how to learn what the truth is better. Third, introspective practices. Um, There's a long Christian tradition, going back to Augustine, of questioning your own motives for learning, because you can learn for all kinds of non-Christian motives. Um, Augustine made this distinction between what he called curiositas and studiositas. Studiositas is the good kind of, just like for Augustine, for the, for the, the older Christian tradition, there's good and bad versions of, of all of the appetites, right? So um, if you think about hunger, there's a good and a bad version, right? You know, hunger helps you stay alive, um, gluttony does other stuff, right? So um, sexual appetite, right? Uh, you know, sex is good, but lust probably isn't, right? So there's, there's these pairs of things. So think about your appetite for learning, right? The studiositas, which is the appetite for understanding God's world, for getting clearer about things, for serving your community by having knowledge and skills that you can share with others, for helping other people to understand. Um, 
for understanding what's wrong so you can repent. There's also curiositas, which is learning stuff just so you can look good in front of other people, so that you can be the person who talks the most, um, so that you can win awards, so that you can get into the best university, so that you can make more money than other people. Right? That's, so the appetite for knowledge is neither good nor bad inherently. Right? It can go either way because we're created fallen beings. So introspective practices are those moments when you sit down and you do things like a student who came to me at Calvin once and said, um, I've completed every course in the honours programme except the final dissertation. And I've written the final dissertation, but I'm not sure whether I'm going to turn it in. Because I feel like if I complete the honours course and I get this special thing that not everybody got for being an honours student, what, what's that going to fuel in me other than pride? And we had a long conversation about the pros and cons of this and, and so on. But I like that the student was asking that question. right? Because that's a Christian practice, is, is trying to test the spirits. right? It's trying to figure out what's in your heart um, and figure out what's actually driving the choices that you're making. So there's a set of practices there that students need to be invested in, which is questioning your own motivations for doing what you're doing. Um, there's a third area, a fourth area, which is benevolence practices. So... Um, this is starting to think about the well-being of the wider world. Right? So how many times in the last month have you taken something you learned in school and applied it to the needs of your community? This can be as simple as learning about creation care and going picking up litter on the beach. Right? Uh, what, what justice concerns are you engaged with? Right? Um, what, are you, what needs are you finding out about in your community? Do you even know where the needs are in your community? So this obviously relates to things like service learning, um, social justice questions, uh, international connections, right? All of these ways in which you try to work out loving your neighbour, not just in terms of your immediate peer group and who's feeling good in class, but in terms of the wider needs of your community. Um, this also is part of Christian faith, is trying to figure out how you relate to the needs of the world. Um, this relates to things like giving, for instance, uh, but also service projects, etc. And again, this is something I find that certain students are very motivated for. Uh, you know, I've had students come to me at Calvin and say, I want to start a new organisation just to get some students together to serve the local neighbourhood, and will you be the faculty sponsor, and this kind of thing. So students themselves often initiate this kind of, uh, this kind of learning. And finally, um, we've got a category that we call formational practices, which are... Um, these are the moments when you engage in practices that are actually designed to shape your own long-term formation. So a simple Christian formational practice is reading your Bible every day, even when it's not exciting, because you just hope that over time it's going to do good to you. Right? Trying to pray regularly because you hope that it's going to shape you in certain ways. But it could also be choosing to sit at the front of class because you hope that's going to shape you in certain ways. So formational practices are partly the devotional things like worship and prayer and Bible study and so on. But also any Christian practice that's designed to try to help you to get closer to where you're going uh, as a Christian uh, than where you were before. Now our culture understands this kind of practice very well. It's big business. Right? There is a huge industry right now around trying to sell you apps to get better at managing your diet, better at managing your attention span, better at managing your exercise regime, um, etc., etc. Uh, so there's a real strong cultural awareness right now that there are practices you can engage in that over a few months, if you stick at them, reshape you um, and put you in a slightly different position to where you started. Now, Christians, Christians have known this for thousands of years, um, and um, that there's stuff you can engage in that just helps you grow. So the formational practices are the ones where you're trying to invest in your own formation. Now, like I said, trying to get this in five categories is not going to catch every nuance of the Christian life. 
Um, but this was our attempt to summarize a year of reading, starting with the latest Baker paperback and going back to um, Evagrius. Um, and um, uh, side note on Evagrius, Evagrius was a desert father who's got this wonderful passage in one of his pieces of writing about how to deal with the noonday demon. Um, and the noonday demon is that feeling you get right after lunch when you don't want to study. <laughs> right? And so you've got to have a strategy for dealing with that because round about like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to be sleepy and you're not going to want to concentrate on scripture. So, uh, so if you're a monk in the, <laughs> in the desert right, and it's hot, you, you need a strategy for the noonday demon. right? So uh, we're not the first ones to try to think about how to be Christian learners. <laughs> so, um, so if we take this as kind of a rough map of what the vocation to be a Christian student might look like. <clears throat> Nobody's doing all of this except Jesus, right? So this is, this, is the, this is the target map, not the... So we started thinking, what if we could actually design an assessment tool that asks students about how they're investing in each of these five areas? Um, and so that's what we've been designing for the last, uh, the last year and a half. Um, and the tool is called Practicing Faith. And the logo was designed three days ago. Um, so um, what we've done over the last year and a half was we, we put a team together consisting of um, some of the original folk from Calvin, but also some colleagues at the University of Notre Dame and the University of Arkansas who work in educational measurement and psychometric testing, because once it gets into the statistics, it's well out of my expertise. Uh, and so we've spent a year designing a tool um, going through a very rigorous six-stage process that's going to be explained on the website, of validating it. Uh, there's lots of processes. You, know, you can just make up a questionnaire and ask people, but that proves nothing. Uh, so actually going through and making sure that the questions do in fact test what we think they're testing. Testing it out with a couple of thousand students in different kinds of schools around the country. Um, running analyses on the results. We need to analyze whether different students respond in similar ways to differently worded versions of the same question um, and all these kinds of things to try and make sure you've got a tool that does actually validly test what it says it's testing. Um, and we've, within weeks of being able to roll this out with 10 pilot schools, hopefully this coming spring, um, and having this available for schools in general uh, probably next fall if life continues to go reasonably well. Um, so... Um, so the goal is to try to pull these things together, to try to build a tool that gives students immediate feedback, that focuses on their formation in ways that touches, touch classroom practices, that thinks of faith very broadly, not just in terms of correct belief, um, that has students to think about their vocation, and that thinks about vocation in terms of these five areas of practice. So very briefly, because you better explore this when it comes out, um, the way this is basically working is we've got an online self-assessment that students will be able to take. Um, and... Um, it will ask them a bunch of questions, randomised, that will cover these five areas of practice. Uh, so it will ask them to explore their own investment in service, in justice, in questioning their own motivations, in thinking Christianly, and so on. Um, what it will then give them back um, is uh, some feedback. So you know like when you take these personality tests and you get a sheet back that says, congratulations, you're an ABXJ or whatever, and, and it'll be um, something sort of like that, uh, but it'll kind of say, hey, it's... Great, it looks like you're really investing your faith in your relationships, but have you ever thought about the thinking part of your faith? Right? It doesn't look like you're quite as invested there, or the other way around. And we actually figure that given that nobody but Jesus is doing all five of these areas, that every student will have strengths and weaknesses. And that's what we found in the trialing. It comes out as a sine curve. Right? You, uh, you've got areas where you're a bit more invested and areas where you're less invested. Uh, and that's fine. So the goal is not necessarily to improve your score. The goal is to actually learn something about yourself and about how you're investing in your own faith formation. 
Um, so we're hoping that that feedback actually gives students some clues and some resources about here are some ways you could grow. Here are some ways you could think of investing in your faith that maybe you're not thinking of right now. And here's some ways in which you already are. What the school will get is anonymous aggregate feedback. It needs to be anonymous because otherwise the students will start responding the way they think we want them to respond when they fill out the questionnaire. So the student is the only person who sees their individualized feedback. Um, that's an important part of the design. That's for them, and if they don't want to share it with anybody, they don't have to. But what the school will get is aggregate feedback. So we figure it might actually be useful for the school for you to learn, guess what, most of your students think that, I don't know, relationships are a thing, but not many of them are thinking about service, or the other way around, uh, to actually start to see where you might be helping and where you might not be helping. Um, and then maybe that can actually provide feedback back to teachers, because the other thing that often happens with these assessment things is a bunch of numbers go to the administrator, and if you're a classroom teacher, it doesn't actually help you a great deal. Okay, so 73% of our students scored this. What does that actually, how does that help your planning for next semester? Whereas you, if you actually find out as a school that maybe you need to invest a little bit more in relational practices, that's something you can have a conversation about. How do all of us across the curriculum start to think about the kinds of classroom practices that might raise students' awareness of how they can invest in each other's well-being in the classroom or one of these other areas. So we want something that will actually sort of push back into classroom pedagogy and not just provide numbers for the school, but will also provide numbers for the school because we need those these days. Um, and so hopefully, if we can get teachers to think about this, this will then wash back onto the student who will get more supports to try to think about what it means to be a Christian student and to be living out their vocation. The trickiest thing about this, um, we're trying to provide lots of guidance on the website, is going to be not making this a crushing quest for perfection, but keeping it loose and saying, here's some areas to think about how your life's going. Right? Not like, you got a 7 out of 10, you should have got a 9. Uh, so we're being pretty careful which bits of the, this get numbers on them. But that's, a, that's another area we can think about. Timeline, we've been developing it. We developed it in the fall of 18. Uh, we, we tested it in the spring of 19 with a couple of thousand students nationwide. Um, we've got an early adopter phase, hopefully later this year, and we should have open, impl open, impl open implementation in fall of 2020. And if you're curious, so I've got stuff to ask me about it after, after today. Kaya's at halving.edu is the Kaya's Institute website. Um, or if, even if your school wants to get in touch and say, hey, we want to be in the pilot program, um, then uh, that's the place to email. Um, I think I've said enough, so I should stop there. Um, so um, just trying to create a different run of this from the things we usually try to count and see if we can do something that helps students and teachers more than the current models seem to. Questions, comments, cries of despair? Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, underneath your tagline of practice of faith, it says a tool for assessing growth. Yeah. Does that necessitate that there's two iterations? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, the way that we're hoping schools will use this, because they think this might make it the most useful, is it, it's not the kind of tool where you really should be taking it too often, because it, it, that could just create pointless navel-gazing and a slight move up or down. It's not going to tell you anything. But I can imagine a scenario where a school, for example, has all the freshmen take it in high school and then has all the seniors take it, and targets some kind of area of intervention in the years in between, and then you can see whether you move the needle. Right, so, so let's say you find out that your freshmen all seem to be not paying attention to area three, then you can work on that for a couple of years, 
and then check again at the end of school and see if it changed. And so you might actually get a kind of a benchmarking. So one of the things I wanted to get, wanted us to try and get beyond is, if you think of things, I don't know if you know anything about the Cardus survey. Cardus have done this big national survey of Christian school outcomes, and it's fantastic work. But one of the problems with it is it costs a million and a half dollars every time they do one. So you only get one every 10 years. And you only get a static data slice. So by the time you get the data, it's already out of date. Um, and you don't actually know whether it's still true of this lot of students. So we hope if we can provide something that's economical enough that you can actually do a rolling cycle of interventions, you might actually be able to track change over time um, and figure out whether your school is sort of veering off in this direction or whether it, you know, more of your students are attending to this. So, yeah. I think it'll be interesting too to see what the message, what message this sends to students. We often hear the phrase, you know, we test what's, they think what is important is what we test. Right. So if they see that we're testing it, that they know it's important. I think we will get some of that effect, and I sort of want some of that, right? You know, that if we, um, and the same is true for teachers, right? If something is on the test, then we start teaching to it, right? So um, that, I, I will admit, that is one of my subversive purposes for working on this, um, is uh, uh, any, any lever I can find to help change what teachers do in classrooms. So, so, uh, um, so yeah, certainly. Um, Again, we're going to have to watch what language we use around testing and so on because we've got lots of language up front to say to students, this is not a test like your other tests. This is not a thing that you get 92%. Right? I can't tell you that you're 76% humble now. Right. What I can do is provide a kind of mirror to hold up to you to show you which areas of your life you're investing more or less in right now. So the result is like a relative result for each student of like, you seem to be investing more here than here, not you got 67%. So, yeah. Is there a, is this intended for certain ages or are there different? Yeah, the, different? the version we've designed right now is high school probably down into middle school. Um, that's where we've tested it. We've trialed it with, with high school and middle school students. Um, we've already got colleges inquiring about using it, and I don't see why it wouldn't work in the first year or two of college because I really don't think our students are that different yet from high school students. Um, but, uh, but I would really hesitate to use it further down than that. I think it would be a different kind of tool for, for elementary. Um, so, and we don't know how to do that right now. So, <laughs> yeah. So you talked about students getting the results. Is there any incorporation of the parents or not? I just, just last week I wrote the parent FAQ page. Um, and um, one of the things that I emphasized in the parent FAQ is if you're a parent, show an interest. Ask your student about it. Don't insist that they show you their results. Right? Um, that's what I, not all parents will agree with me on that, but I think it's really important for the validity of this that students know that they're only answering for themselves. That they're not answering to show anybody else that they check the right boxes. Um, my, own, my own middle daughter, I know when she went through Christian high school, the thing that she struggled with most was the sense that Christian school culture was constant pressure to be the perfect Christian girl. Uh, and... Um, that was really quite corrosive for her. And uh, so we're trying to do whatever we can to steer away from that message, right? That we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to measure your degree of conformity, right? I'm interested in students having chances to grow. I'm not interested in whether they fit the box. Uh, so for that reason, I want to take as much pressure off as possible for there, for there being an adult looking over your shoulder. So it's very explicitly said to the students, you don't have to show your results to anybody. It's for you. If you want to, then, then great, right? But, um, and there's guidance for parents saying, by all means, ask it. 
things you can ask your student. What did this make you think about? Did you learn anything about yourself? Is there any areas you've decided you want to grow that you want to share? Right? Totally have that conversation. But getting a number is not going to help anyway. It's, it's, it's kind of, yeah. So are the results comparing those five, their interests, those yep. five areas, compared to themselves, or yep. is it comparing to anyone else? No, it's compared to themselves. Um, so what you get back is like a, the current design is, is like a wave, right? So, so, so you, you know, if you imagine a like, you know, relational, you're up here, and intellectual, you're here, and, and so on. So you get like a curve. And then you can, you, can, you can then click further. Like if you want to explore further the intellectual practices, it'll give you a little bit more feedback. And then it'll also link to actually some stories about other students and the kind of choices, examples of other students trying to make headway in this area. So you could imagine some ways of doing this. And we're also building some classroom teaching resources so that you can explore this with a group in class as well afterwards. So it's, it's more trying to get students into the thought process than benchmarking them. Yeah. Um, now the school can benchmark if they do their own comparisons across time. So we're trying to we're trying to get a design that achieves both of those things, where the student can be, the school can benchmark, but the student doesn't. That's what we're after. So. Yeah. Thinking out loud here, this is maybe a question and a comment at once, but um, you talked about this being kind of subversive earlier, and I know for me one of the things that. Uh, I, I value like high standardized test scores for certain schools are important for teachers, for parents, for students, scholarship money-wise. But as someone who teaches at Kelvin University, um, is there any way to maybe reward is the wrong word? Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking about how much of an obsession it is to right. get higher ACT, higher SAT scores, to get more money for college. Could this be connected yeah. in some way to Christian schools, to Christian universities? I think that would be fantastic. Um, wow. and because, uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot in there. Um, because sometimes I listen at the K-12 end, and, and I hear people talking about, well, we need to do this, this, and this to get students into college. When I talk to admissions people at my own university, those aren't the things they're looking for. Right? And, and one of the things we know from a lot of research is that high standardized test scores don't correlate well with learning. So um, there's one famous study from years ago where they took uh, first-year Harvard physics students who all got good grades on their first-year Harvard physics test, and they gave them a test designed to measure their underlying thought structures about how physical forces work in the world and found they were all medieval Aristotelians. Um, that, uh, that, that really they just hadn't learned, right? They'd learned how to pass tests, right? But, but not much had gone on underneath in terms of the actual structure of their thinking about, about how the world worked. So um, there's pretty good evidence that standardized test scores don't correlate well with learning outcomes. Um, and most people I talk to in higher education are more interested in learning outcomes. Now, like you say, the scholarship piece is what complicates this more because often those kinds of programs are looking for quick ways to have a cut-off line, right? And that's where the standardized test scores start having more weight than on the academic side. Uh, often from the admissions side at the university side, we want interesting students who can think, well, that's who we want in our classrooms. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I have zero interest in what they got in the ACT. I, I don't know what any of my students got in the ACT, right? So um, there's a whole dysfunctional culture around that. But certainly, it would be great if this could eventually provide a way of having dialogue around what kind of students are we getting and how are they investing in their own learning. So, but yeah, who knows? Thank you. 
convincing students uh, that that data is not important for getting into college and that kind of stuff, it's really hard to burst that bubble. And I often find that when students evaluate teachers, that I'm often shocked, like, that was not on my goals at all. I don't want that to be seen. I didn't even, and there, here's this huge trend. And I often find, like, is there, is there a test or a survey you can take where the parent takes it about the kid, the kid takes it about the kid, students take it about the kid, the teacher takes it about the kid, yep. and now you can see how all these different things are interacting and viewing you. Yep. I don't know how else to burst that bubble for There are some people working on those kinds of models. So there's a survey being developed in England, and this is going to be the most unhelpful answer ever because I can't remember what it's called, um, where they're actually specifically zooming in on this relational piece, and it creates this kind of map. So it asks each person in the school who their relationships are with. So it creates like a map of who's connected to whom within the school. So one basic thing that helps you see is who's isolated. Um, and then it also helps you actually check perceptions, um, sort of like, how do you think you're doing and how does this other person with whom you said you're connected think you're doing and so on. Uh, that's obviously a much more intensive and complex exercise and it tends to be focused on, this is always the trade-off, right? That if you want to learn about one thing in depth, it takes a lot of time and effort and you have to focus down on one thing. If you want to go broader, you have to step back a little bit because one of the constraints in all of these is you can't give students a, a four-hour questionnaire. Um, not only because they don't have time, because if you create one of these things that lasts longer than like 25 minutes, people start randomly checking boxes to get it finished. So you start to get invalid results if it runs for too long. Um, so there's complications around this, but there are people trying to create those 360 kind of, kind of things. And I could, I could imagine a future where maybe you take a tool like this to get the general lay of the landscape, and then if, you're, if your school decides it really wants to work on the relational piece, then... Maybe there's a link on the site. You get in touch with Robin England, who's working on this relational health tool, and you, you know, maybe you can focus in on that. So I think there's there's no one magic bullet that finds out everything. But, yeah. One more question. Before we completely run out of oxygen. <laughs> How often do you picture a student taking that? To be helpful. Yeah, I would not want to see it used more than twice for a given student. As I say, in, the story in my mind is it would be great to do this with freshmen and seniors, right? To find out what your baseline is when students come, come into high school, for instance, and then to find out whether you changed anything four years later. Because that will actually give you a crude measure of school impact, right? In other words, the things that aren't just because they've got good parents um, or because they go to a, good, a church with a good youth program or whatever, but things the school might have added. Um, if you can actually sort of compare kind of incoming and outgoing. Uh, but I think any more often than that is going to be, you're not going to see meaningful changes in the data. It's almost going to be misleading because you're going to start obsessing over whether your curve went up or down a little bit, and that's not really meaningful. So if you want to track with any of this stuff, um, pedagogy.net is the Kaiser Institute website, onchristianteaching.com is my website. Um, Facebook.com slash onchristianteaching uh, if you want to follow those um, keep in touch well, thank you for coming thank you.